Thanks, thanks so much for, for making it here tonight. This is a very special evening for the Cricket Society. Um, it's very seldom that we have an opportunity uh, to talk to someone of the, of the standing of, of uh, Professor Guha. Uh, and Ram has been a, a colossus as far as, far as uh, Indian, Indian intellectual thought is concerned for, for a long period of time now. Uh, and he's going to talk about his real love and his real interest, which is, uh, which is the history of cricket and what cricket means. So we're, 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 we're uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, we're absolutely delighted that uh, we were able to, uh, we're able to have Ram with us. I won't go through his list of awards and prizes and his output, which is phenomenal. I think I counted 26 books uh, on, on cricket and on history generally. Um, and he's written on the history of India, he's written on Gandhi, and the last, in fact, the last word on Gandhi, pretty well. Uh, and he's also, uh, and of course, he's also written massively around Indian and Indian cricket. So I'm really expecting a, a fascinating evening. Uh, I think uh, we're going to get a lot of insights into what cricket's like as seen from an Indian perspective, and particularly as seen from the historical perspective. Uh, that Ram's tradition reflects and his, his work reflects. So we'll have a, we'll have a conversation around that. Um, I just want to say a couple of quick kind of housekeeping points. Uh, first of all, this is a Cricket Society uh, meeting uh, and the Cricket Society, for those of you who are not members, and I must, there must be one or two, but very few I'm sure, uh, but the Cricket Society is an institution whose aim is to spread the word around cricket and to support cricket in all its ways whether it's listening to cricket, whether it's watching it, writing about it, uh, playing cricket, uh, and, and indeed even talking about it. Uh, cricket itself is really, is, is, is really fundamental to, uh, to what the society is. And, and it has a unique position as a result of that. It's able to look at cricket in a, a broader view without having a, a particular perspective on where things are. And given the kind of crises that cricket is facing to, in terms of Planting cricket in the country, in this country, uh, domestic cricket more broadly, and particularly in international cricket uh, currently, as to where the game is going, this is a really critical moment. And so we're very fortunate to be uh, talking to, to Ram tonight about this. So I'm going to uh, move out of kind of chair mode and I'm going to move into conversation mode. Uh, first of all, as I said, uh, Ram is, uh, Ram is a, a colossus and a, uh, fundamentally a, a significant, uh, his significance is in his independence and as an independent thinker, uh, both as a historian uh, and a thinker about cricket. And I think we, we're at a particular moment in time where, we, uh, where we, we, uh, we're 75 years plus a week uh, following the Indian independence uh, in, in, uh, in um, uh, the 17th, sorry, the 15th of August, uh, 1947. And it's kind of a, a moment of, of retrospection, and it's a moment to also look ahead about where India is and where Indian cricket is in that, uh, in the light of that. But it's also a moment to reflect on the fact that uh, around the same time, 75 years after independence, we think about Salman Rushdie and Midnight's Children, which is about that moment of the birth of India, uh, and, and focuses on, on the, in a, in a particular way, on, on how India is and was uh, from there. And of course, the, the cruelty of the fatwa against Salman Rushdie 
uh, an unspeakable attack on him uh, 10 days ago. And I think, we, uh, I think we need to bear that in mind as to where we are in the broader, the broader context of things. So anyway, I've, I've spoken for rather a lot. I'm, I'm sorry about that, and I hope I won't need to say much more from here on in. I'd just like to start by saying we're going to focus mainly on uh, Ram's relatively recent book. I won't say it's his most recent because I'm aware he's also uh, written a book on, on uh, seven heroes uh, of Indian, uh, in terms of Indian independence and resistance to colonialism, uh, a topic close to my heart as well. And uh, so that was, I think, published after this, wasn't it? Um, so it's his second most recent book, uh, The Commonwealth of Cricket. Uh, it's, a, it's a memoir. It's a personal statement uh, of, of Rem's history, his background, what he sees as his own involvement in the cricket process, uh, and, and also about cricketers that he knew and cricketers he engaged with, uh, and, and finally about his involvement in cr cricketing politics and, and the BCCI and so on. It's subtitled, and I think this is important because this is where Ram is coming from, it's subtitled A Lifelong Love Affair with the Most Subtle and Sophisticated Game Known to Humankind. So I'm just going to ask Ram to start with, how did, you, how did you start this love affair? And more importantly, how did you start writing this book? Uh, so uh, the love affair started when I was a little boy of four, and the book starts with what was the first match I watched. And of course, I was told about it later. It was a match uh, played in Bahuntown Dehradun, which is a, used to be a beautiful sub Himalayan uh, uh, valley full of uh, sal forests and birds and animals, and now, now some kind of overgrown concrete jungle. But this was a match played between two teams, one of which was captained by my uncle and in which my father hit the winning runs. So it's a description, it's all true. So it's a, it starts with that. And my uncle was a one-handed cricketer. He lost, his right arm was deformed. And he played, uh, he was a Ranji Trophy reserve for Uttar Pradesh and he captained Bangalore's, one of Bangalore's best first division teams. So he was my cricketing hero and mentor. And those of you who know uh, Indian kinship, uh, he was my mama, my mother's brother. And um, your maternal uncle is particularly close to you, uh, at least in India. And he happened to have no children. And because I was born with two hands and two legs, none of which were deformed, he thought I'm going to make a test cricket out of my nephew. <laughs> and so it starts with that, and of course, it's carried on till today. I was, Richard and I were talking about uh, uh, the test match that just ended for which he had tickets for day one and four. Most, most of day one was rained out, and day four did not happen. And this South African settled in England, that was his fate, whereas this Indian flew in <laughs> and was able to watch day three in its entirety and revel in the glory of a five-man uh, bowling attack. So, and I was particularly able to revel in the glory of that attack not only because it is so good and so diverse, it's because I'm a partisan of bowlers. I mean, my book ends with a chapter on cricketing chauvinism, you know. I don't, I'm not a partisan of India as a test team, but I'm, there are other things I'm passionate about, and I'm a partisan of test cricket or one-day cricket, and of bowlers of a batsman. Uh, so, this is, so this is the kind of journey of this book. And Richard, to answer your question, 
when did I want to write it? Mm. So essentially, I wanted to, I always knew I had to pay tribute to Monk because, you know, we're talking about uh, the 1960s uh, when there's no live television in India. So much of the folklore you collect is oral, stories that are told to you by older generations. And at the age of eight, I joined my uncle's club and uh, uh, I would go, of course, for practice and then I started playing for them and so on and so forth. And he's been a constant presence in my life and he's, he's now in his mid-80s. And I always wanted to write something about him. Uh, but it's only when I was by accident appointed part of the committee of administrators to oversee uh, uh, Indian cricket appointed by the Supreme Court of India that I realized that there's a complete arc from a little fan, a little boy who's a fan, uh, to being at the pinnacle of Indian cricket, where of course, as I describe, I lamentably failed to, to, to clean up the mess that had been left behind. And things have actually gone, I mean, we can talk a little bit about where the BCCI is now, but I, I left without at least getting my hands dirty, you know. So, but the arc was complete, you know, from being a fan, to being a schoolboy cricketer, a college cricketer, a reader of cricket books, a writer of cricket books, and then really in the belly of the beast. So I thought, you know, I had the makings of a memoir. Yeah. Thanks, Ram. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're exactly what the Cricket Society is all about. Really. You cover all of, the, uh, all of those bases. Um, it's, uh, the, book, the book for me was uh, a, a kind of a love affair of cricket. But it was a love affair really of people. What you were really writing about was cricketers and about characters and, and the individuals you make up this, yeah. this incredibly complex yes. and fascinating game and their interaction yeah. and how people to deal with each other. I felt, I felt what was really fascinating about the book itself was how you were able to bring your own personal feelings into that. So tell us how you, how you engaged with that. Um, for example, uh, the, the, first, the first Indian captain after, uh, after independence has... has, has uh, most of you will know it was Lala Amanath. And uh, Amanath was, uh, was, was a fantastic player. Uh, and indeed, Amanath told you, as, as you, you say in the book, that uh, he was the second best wicketkeeper in the country, the third best seamer, and the best batsman. <laughs> so my question is, can you say, tell us a little bit about Amanath? And was he really all of those things? Yeah. So Amanath belonged uh, to the generation of Indian cricketers uh, whose career was grievously damaged by the Second World War. So he makes his debut in 33-34 against Jardine's team. And in the first test uh, played on Indian soil at the Brabant Stadium, he scores 100. He grows up in, in Lahore, then moves uh, to East Punjab. And he was a magnificent attacking batsman. And he scored 100 against a good English side. And he was a seam bowler and a very good keeper too. Then he comes in 1936 to England. He is too young uh, uh, to be chosen for the 32 tour of England when England, India played its first test match at Rhodes. He comes four years later and he has a fantastic record. He is topping the bowling and the batting averages and he gets into a fight with his captain and he's sent back home. His captain was a, was a Maharaja who was uh, essentially bought his way to the top, you know. I mean, I think in England you have, uh, you have a history of so-called gentleman captains who weren't pretty distinguished players. But even by those standards, Vizi was, you know, disastrous. It's like just picking a guy off the road and saying, we're going to make you captain of the Indian team. And he, Amarnath fought with him because, you know, Amarnath was a man of great pride, self-respect. So he comes back, he's then 
out of test cricket for more than 10 years. Then he comes here in 1946. And this is a story I don't tell in this book, uh, Richard, I've told it elsewhere. Uh, in 1946, the first post-war tour of England is by an Indian team. And one of the loveliest books written on that tour, uh, and I'm sure some members of the Cricket Society, perhaps of this audience, have that book, is John Arlett's Indian Summer. It was John Arlett's first book on cricket. Arlett cut his teeth uh, covering that tour. And there are two stories about Arlett and that tour, which I don't tell in this book, but I'll tell now. One is about Amarnath, and it's about uh, uh, Amarnath bowling to Harold Gimlet, who was the fantastic attacking batsman of Somerset. And he bowled him three, uh, in 1946, you know, in a county match, and he bowled him three pro probing mid-novers, and Gimlet was getting uh, you know, impatient, he didn't get anything to drive. And he asked him, don't you bowl a half volley? And he said, I bowled one in 1934. <laughs> okay, that's one. That's one story that Harold tells. But there's a better story which is about, uh, which is to do actually, which has some links to the kind of stuff that Richard, uh, 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 you know, works on with regard to his life in cricket. On that tour, Arlett befriended Vijay Merchant. Now, Vijay Merchant was not only India's greatest batsman, he topped the first class averages in, in 1946, but he was also a passionate patriot. He refused to come on the 32, 32 tour of England because Mahatma Gandhi, after whom this hall is named, was in prison. So he said, I will not go. In 1936, Gandhi was out of jail. He came. He played brilliantly. And in 46, he came back. He should have been captain. But at that stage, again, because of the Indian feudal system, a Maharaja, a somewhat better cricketer, the Nawaba Patavdi Stadium, was made captain. And Arlen got very friendly with Merchant. And this is 1946. And, you know, the negotiations for independence are on. It's not clear whether it, uh, independent India will be one country or two. There's trouble between Hindus and Muslims. And at some stage, Arlett asks his new friend, the Indian trader merchant, he says, Vijay, you know, he, I, I read reports about religious rioting and uh, Hindus and Muslims fighting. Are you really fit for independence? Don't you think the English should be there a little longer to hold your hands? And Merchant replies, John, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you English not have to have a civil war to win your liberties? Now, so that's the kind of generation that Amarnath and Merchant belong to, you know, inspired by Gandhi, uh, coming away as cricketers, but losing many years because of the war and because India hardly played. And Amarnath, uh, uh, Richard, was a great figure. Uh, uh, I talk about him, meeting him when I was a schoolboy, and he's coaching me. But he was a major figure in my college days, because his two sons played for Delhi and India, Mohinder and Surinder. And Mohinder was, uh, Surinder got 100 in his first test like his father, but Mohinder had much more the distinguished uh, cricketing record. He was also man of the match uh, when India won the 1983 World Cup. And Amalad would come in, you know, uh, uh, we would get seats somewhere near because my people who I played with were playing for Delhi. Uh, so I would get, we would get seats somewhere near the pavilion and Amadad would come in smoking a pipe, the old man. And uh, one of the boys would get out and go into the pavilion and Amadad would follow him, you know. And they would say, and you know, there would be some people here who understand Hindi. And they would be like, hush, hush. What did Lala say? Suna tumne? Lala ne usko thappad He came a real wagon. 
getting out. So these were the stories about Amarnath. You know, and so uh, I think he was just a fantastic character, a great all-round cricketer, who had he not been sent back in the thirty-six tour, who had the Second World War not happened, would be remembered as a true great of the game. That's right. Yes, and a, a, a true leader of, of an independent India. I mean, I think that's it's the independence of spirit. Yeah, well, comes well, well, so one last thing, uh, which I want to link you to your work. Yeah. You know, Arlott dates the beginning of his own political consciousness to the 1946 Indians. And of course, it's Arlott who then goes on to do what you have written about with regard to Dolly Yeah. Yes, absolutely. The, the, all it starts in India and gets to South Africa and recognises what, what can really happen in this kind of environment. But his political consciousness is formed initially through these, his Indian experience. It's, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Um, one, of the, one of the areas that you deal with, for me, in, in an amazing way in this book is the experience of being a cricket fan. You're, a, you're a, a serious cricket writer and a serious historian, but you're also at heart, you're still that small boy. Yeah. You're a fan in here. And you talk about it in a lovely line, you talk about meeting the Navabatoni and, and frothing and, bl and blabbering like a, uh, like, like, <laughs> like a real fan, you know, just, just so taken by the presence of this, of this person. Um, what's, what's, your, what's your experience now of that? Have you managed to contain that or are you still a fan? Are you still, no, you feel, feel like that? No, I'm a fan. So, you know, <laughs> go back to uh, last week. So what was it? Third day of Jasper, last Friday. Three days ago, uh, my son and I had tickets in the Edrich stand, lower stand, quite close. And um, uh, we were speaking at early. And uh, Atherton and Sean Pollock walked across. And Atherton is actually a friend of mine. From, I mean, he's, he's, he's mentioned the book too. I consider him a friend. But there he was a friend. He was with Sean Pollock. You know, and I was thinking, hey, you know, they're both going up to the commentary box. And I asked my son, because my son has a better memory than me and knows his name. I said, hey, when Atherton bat batted 13 hours in uh, Johannesburg, was Sean bowling to him? Yeah. So I had, had he, of course, knew what the answer. But, you know, here was a great... Um, so English batsman and a great South African fast bowler walking across discussing the state of the match and so I was a fan. I said even though uh, Sean Pollock is probably 10 or 15 years younger than me and Atherton is actually a friend, you know, I've had dinner at his house, he's had dinner at my house but that, at that moment <laughs> these were these two great cricketers and I was a 10 year old, well with my son, so they were, you know, this book by the way uh, uh, is, uh, and apologies for uh, uh, a dedication that is not intended to be patriarchal, but might sound patriarchal. Uh, this book is dedicated to, in memory of my father, who bought me my first cricket books. And for my son, first reader of this one. So that's, that's how it is. So, you know, it's, it's uh, very, I mean, a great cricketer in the flesh, who we've seen uh, bat, will always, I mean, frankly, and I can say this, Mike Brady is also a friend of mine. And I respect his intellect enormously. But I won't be thinking of him as a great batsman. <laughs> you know, if he's walking across the roads, I'll say, you know, is Mike talk, talking about what's in his mind? Is it Hegel or is it Kierkegaard? You know, right. But with Atkinson, who was a fantastic, who played one of the great defensive innings of all time, you know. So when you see him with Pollock, uh, what, 20 years after that innings, uh, and he was just walking across the roads. It was just chatting. It's just a wonderful moment.
Yes, I, th I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think that there is something about this game and the game when played at that kind of level by these individuals, which turns relationships in a, in a very interesting, peculiar way. And uh, no, I mean, I, I feel exactly the same as you do, and I'm just as excited when I see. Um, I was coached by Mike Proctor when I was about ten. He didn't do a very good job, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I probably should sue him. But anyway, uh, he, I've seen him a few times since. And just being in his presence is, is oh, you know, this is, this is something really special. And I think that's an important side of cricket. I mean, we can be too cynical about cricket. And I think this is, this is the warmth and the joy of cricket, is just the significance of what these, these people are. So um, let, me, let me move on a little bit to, to cricket and politics. And, and, certainly cricket and social history. Um, you, talk a, uh, you talk a bit in here about, well, you really look at, you, this is a memoir, so this is within your lifetime. You talk in your earlier books, particularly in, in, in uh, Court of a Foreign Field, about the history of Indian cricket. And I'd just like to ask you a little bit about that, uh, for people who may not be, be familiar with, uh, may not have read that. Um, but particularly, I want, to, I want to ask you about the, the uh, the setup of Indian cricket in the 1890s, and, and there, there are two kind of key characters in that. One is Lord Harris, who is governor of Bombay between 1890 and 1895, and sort of the centre of the imperial web. Uh, and, and, the, and, the, and the other is a different figure, uh, Pawanka Balu. And Pawanka Balu is a critical figure in not only in Indian cricket, but in Indian politics as well. And, and the close relationship between cricket and politics throughout this period in India, also, I have to say, in South Africa, uh, in a slightly different way, uh, is fundamental to, to the significance of cricket and, and, and what it is. And I'd just like to ask you if you might say a few words about, about Baloo and, and yeah. particular, and let me know what... Uh, yeah. yeah how so, uh, Panwankar Baloo was India, the first great Indian cricketer. That's the case I make in my book. I mean, it's a revisionist argument. It's conventionally believed that the first great Indian cricketer was Ranji, who uh, uh, played for Cambridge, played for England. But Ranji himself said, I'm an English cricketer, because he was made on here. Balu was born in an untouchable home, uh, whereas Ranji was, of course, uh, without discounting Ranji's genius as a batsman, uh, he was a person of privilege. Balu was born in an untouchable home, uh, who made his way through the ranks, at that stage, as I describe in my book, competitive cricket in India was played on religious, uh, on a religious basis. So the main teams were the Europeans, the Parsis, the Muslims, and the Hindus. And the tournament, India's showcase tournament, the IPL of those days, shall we say, was the Bombay Quadrangular. <coughs> and Balu made his name there as a left-arm spinner. And early on, he was not allowed. He had to have tea separately from his teammates because he was untouchable. Uh, he was not allowed to enter the pavilion. Mm -hmm. And although he was the best cricketer, he was never made captain of the team. He comes to England in 1911 and uh, takes 150 wickets. That's the first time an you know, Indian team plays. He doesn't play a test match, but he plays all the counties. There's a wonderful uh, scorecard, which is again in um, uh, an early book, book of mine, Spin and Other Turns, which was one of, one of the people here has a copy of, where I talk about the, the scorecard, All India versus Staffordshire. Balu bowling for All India and the great SF Barnes bowling for, for Staffordshire. And their figures are kind of almost comparable. And uh, so he, I, I, his brother, Victor, who was younger, 
वॉज अ बैट्समैन एट ही इज कमिंग ऑफ क्रिकेटिंग एड्स एट द टाइम एंड महात्मा गांधी रिटर्न टू साउथ अफ्रीका एंड मेक्स दी एबोल्यूशन ऑफ अंटासबिलिटी सेंट्रल पार्ट ऑफ हिज नेशनलिस्ट प्रोग्राम एंड विथल the politics of cricket merges with the politics of the national movement due to gandhi's influence and honor that was denied balu uh, uh is uh, you know given to his brother bitter who uh, and it's 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 extraordinary ending in 1922 in 1919 uh, uh 1920 balu was supposed to be made captain he is not made captain and his two brothers boycott the match is the first known cricketing strike on principle in 1923 witcher is made captain the hindus beat the europeans so they beat the white man in the final witcher scores 100 and he is carried off the field by uh, you know indian nationalist saying mahatma gandhi ki jai glory to mahatma gandhi and you know he was later involved in <coughs> in, in public life he was a early mentor of the great b r ambedkar who later wrote india's constitution so he was very much a sort of a jackie robinson or basil dorevera like figure but had been written out of uh, you know indian cricket history because he played before the ranji trophy before india became a test uh, uh, test playing nation but he was clearly a magnificent bowler a person of principle of courage and who had to battle against these uh, hierarchies and prejudices of the time so he became the central figure of my book i mean uh, of course my book also talks about religious politics nationalist politics national politics but balu really was the central figure balu and his brothers and uh, you know it's a great shame that and you know i think uh, i wish the bcci uh, you know would recognize someone like him you know uh, one of the gates of the wankhede stadium could be called the balu uh, gate for example uh because he was an exemplary i mean he was someone who faced huge amounts of discrimination which he conquered through force of will aided of course by his siblings all four of them were magnificent cricketers and as i said people of principle so that book corova foreign field merged my professional life as a historian and my personal life as a cricket fan you know till then i actually kept them separate you know i would like write fans books in uh, uh, sort of over the weekend and academic works unconnected with cricket in, in the day but through balu i was able to kind of bring together my professional and passion in that sense i am deeply grateful for what he did uh, for me yeah, yeah. for my writing career yeah. yes well well you've certainly done a lot for him since uh, i think uh you you have you have brought it to the attention of of uh, a, a huge number of people and i think it's really crucial that that cricket writing does this uh cricket writing misses uh, cricket history has missed a great deal i think uh particularly in india particularly in south africa uh, maybe less so in the uk which is such well trodden ground but there's still other ways of looking at cricket and, and uh it's interesting the way english cricket writing is going to look at things from a a social history perspective and an idea that cricket is not only something that carries on in social life and unconnected to the way the world works it's often quite fundamental to the way the world works and as an example of that i think balu is, is a, a perfect example so let me move on let me move on through the years a little bit to uh, to a uh, a moment which i think was very was very sweet for you 
which was the Karnataka's uh, triumph in the uh, in the Ranji Trophy over Bombay, over Bombay, I think in seventy two. Seventy four. Oh, seventy four. Sorry, yes. Uh, and it was a semi final. Was that yeah, right? it wasn't yeah. actually a final. It was yeah. a semi final. Would you tell us about why it was case? Yeah, sure. So. Uh, uh, my, I, although I grew up in the Himalayan foothills, my forefathers came from Bangalore and Karnataka. So I would spend my summer holidays there and um, my winter holidays there, playing cricket for my uncle's club, or just you know, picking up balls when I was young and later on playing more seriously. And in those days, when you finished high school in India, you had a six-month break. So I finished school in December 1973 and I had to join university in July of 1974. And I spent those six months in Bangalore. Now, I was born in 1958. <coughs> uh, it, so I, I was 16 in 1974. And till then, all through my life, short as it was, Bombay had been Ranji Trophy champions because Bombay had won consecutively from 1957 till 1974 and they were absolutely unbeatable and here was this match in Bangalore. Bangalore Karnataka was coming up uh, uh, because they had two world-class spinners Prasanna and Chandrasekhar. So a few years before this semi-final Karnataka had reached the semi-final which was played in Bombay and uh, they had a captain called V. Subramanian who later on migrated to Australia. And he scored a hundred, uh, and Karnataka was three hundred and something for nine at the end of the first day. And the Karnataka State Cricket Committee thought, with Prasanna and Chandrasekhar, three hundred was enough for them to win. So they all flew to Bombay that night. And the next day, the day after that, Ajit Wadekar got a triple century of his own bat. That was the Bombay batting, right? Now, so that was a few years before that, and fast forward to 1974, and I'm watching this match uh, between uh, 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 Bombay and Karnataka. I mean, there were some many epic moments, but I don't relate to. Uh, Karnataka won the toss. The first ball, their opening batsman was caught at slip. Bombay had a very good fast bowler called Abdul Ismail, who never played for India, only because at that stage you had to bat and field to play. You had to be an all-rounder like, like Abid Ali or Solkar. You know, we never picked, now we are, we've grown up, so we pick pure fast bowlers who can't bat, uh, like Shami and so on. Yeah. <coughs> so, here is the guy who gets out, and G.R. Vishwanath, my boyhood hero, the first test cricketer whose hand I've shaken a few years before that, comes into bat, and the first ball uh, is an in-swinger, hits him sort of below, below the knee, in front of middle stump. He's given not out. He scores 168. Patel scores 100. And Karnataka 470. But the question is, is 470 enough? And Prasanna gets Gavaskar out. But then Wadekar and Ashok Mankar are in a retrieving stand. From a 40 to 2, they were 130 for 2. And uh, then in an incident, I, I, I'll, I'll go a little bit about this because I think this, this, this is actually, it's all, it's, it's vivid in my mind. So, Vadekar, who had scored that triple 100 and then a double 100 in another match against Karnataka is batting. He plays a ball to point, uh, advances, then sees Sudhakar Rao, my club, you know, moving from cover point, turns back, slips, and is run out. And of course, then Karnataka win the match. 
and then go on to win the final easily. Now, there are two footnotes to uh, these incidents uh, that uh, I was witness to, which uh, are there in the book. Or what I was not witness to, but I heard. Uh, so, the umpire who gave Vishwanath not out was a Bengali called Ganguly, not related to our current Ganguly. And he goes back to Calcutta and he tells the Bengal, he goes to the Eaton Gardens and he meets the Bengal Ranji Trophy players and he tells them, I was able to do what you cricketers, Bengal cricketers could not do all these years, make sure Bombay does not win the Ranji Trophy. And this is an apocryphal story which was I think imposed on poor umpire Ganguly. But the second story is true. So this match was played in 1974. Twenty years later, by which time I had written a couple of cricket books, Ajit Wadekar was manager of the Indian team. They were playing a test match against Zimbabwe, uh, which I remember vividly because the great John Tricos was bowling, a lovely off-spinner in, in his 40s. And there was a dinner thrown after one of the days for which I went and Wadekar was there. So I told Wadekar, I said, sir, 20 years ago I watched you slip. And he shrugged and said, new shoes. So if Ajit Wadekar had been wearing his old shoes, Bombay would still be running trophy champion. <laughs> so I mean, I just say one last thing about this. I'm so taken up with this match and what I saw because it's my team, Karnataka. But also because as a historian, I mean, I've written about Gandhi, I've written about Nehru, I've written about Ambedkar, I've written about Partition. But this is the only time I've seen history happen in front of my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, that's what that's what sport does as it, as it unfolds. Uh, that, that's that's exactly what you get. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think the point is that uh, it's something like that which can overturn uh, overturn a dynasty. You know, it's it's the uh, it's it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's the shoes that the spikes <laughs> on. You know, it's it's a great story. I kind of believe the umpire story as well. By the way, but you may think it's a profit for it. Rings home to me. I know a lot of umpires. That's yeah. definitely uh, rings home. Um, the the other area I wanted to talk to you about was your uh, what what your your vision of of the various cricketers out from outside India, and you you do some delightful uh, analysis and, and discussion about their personalities and their characters and how they play and so on, um, and and really overturn a number of different uh, you know what what one thinks of as as, as you know traditional views. Um, you, you're extremely generous, for example, to uh, John Mianya, and a lot of yeah. people aren't. Yeah. Uh, and you clearly recognise what a player he was and what a character he was and the, the importance of, of, uh, of Jarvan. And I mean, one of the things that Jarvan says is that, uh, uh, as you quote, uh, a nation's self-esteem shouldn't uh, rely on the fortunes of sport. And that's a really interesting kind of corrective about the sport carrying the burden of nationalism. Yeah. And the fact that it should be Javed of yeah. all people to say that because he would be the one guy you would think absolutely believed that it would, sport was all about nationalism. So it's an interesting corrective. And I, I'm very, I very much enjoyed that. What do, you, what do you think of this whole question of sport and national identity and the way it's evolved over time? What's your, what's your feeling about where it was and where it's going? So, you know, I obviously have ambivalent mixed feelings about it. Uh, when I was younger, I was nationalistic. Uh, you know, I grew up when India would barely win a test match. And 1971, uh, a series of sacred digits for me, because we beat West Indies and uh, England that year. And uh, whenever I work in the British Library, 
that's my code for the locker, 1971. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so <laughs> there's some of that. And I suppose for the Pakistanis, it might be 1954, for the New Zealanders, whenever they beat England and so on. But the older I've got, the less nationalistic I've become. And uh, I think what is interesting between India and Pakistan is that the cricketers are not at all nationalistic, you know. Uh, Babar Azam and Virat Kohli greatly admire each other's batsmanship. Uh, I think uh, Javed and Gavaskar or Vasim or... No, I, 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 talk, I related this book, uh, uh, an incident where uh, I was watching a match in your home country, South Africa, in Centurion. It was a Champions Trophy match. And Vasim was in the comedy box. And he came down and Zahir Khan just ran to him. And Vasi gave him some tips. I mean, he was left arms. As, as Arthur Mary famously said, spin bowling is an art and art is international. You know, when he, when he gave Ian people some tips. So I think, you know, I think uh, this is just a game. And I think we surely shouldn't overreact. I mean, a mature society uh, would be fine. I think in, in this country, uh, the ugliest form of sporting nationalism is England versus Germany in football. Right. And God, with the war is 75 years, in the, or 80 years in the past. And Angela Merkel is a better chancellor than every, any prime minister you'll ever have. <laughs> and that's partly because she doesn't have a, even have a Twitter account. Right. <laughs> now, so, come on. I mean, so I think India, this kind of awful sporting nationalism, I have no time for. I can understand why you want your team to win, uh, uh, why you go to Lords to support England. But I sometimes find it excessive, you know, I find, uh, and I, it's just, uh, as if the cricketers don't feel it. When Vasim was bowling to Gavaskar, he wanted to get him out. But if Gavaskar had 100, Vasim would clap him, you know. So I think if there's something about sporting nationalism that to me is profoundly ugly. And I think, uh, which is why now, uh, what I really like is watching a test where India is not playing. Partly because I can enjoy it for the aesthetics and the technique, and partly because there are no Indian commentators on air. They are not. <laughs> they just talk too much. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, I mean, that is a bit of a disease. It's the, uh, the overuse of the commentary mic. Um, I, th I think one of the uh, one of the areas I wanted to talk to you about. I think I, I completely agree with what you say about about nationalism. I, I think. It's possible that, that maybe in cricketing terms, I think society is getting far more nationalist. I think cricket may be getting slightly less, partly as a result of more player power. I yeah, think, yeah, and yeah. players and the professionalism of the game and the fact that players are playing for all sorts of other representative teams Correct. and doctors' yeah. countries and so on. So I, I think there's a diminution of that. I think there's another reason for the diminution as well, and that's women's cricket. And I think women's cricket has become, well, over the last, obviously, as we all know, over the last 10 years, has become a really significant player in the cricket world. And I think we're, uh, most of the, the males in the audience are probably a little slow to recognise just, just how far this has gone. You were on the, the committee that, that you, you mentioned, the Supreme Court uh, Committee, uh, with, uh, with Diana Adilji, who was a, a, captain of, a previous yeah. captain of India. Um, you've also, of course, we've all seen people like uh, like uh, Mitali Raj, uh, legendary cricketer, uh, and, uh, and and Harman Kaur, and and the new generation of Indian cricketers, Indian women cricketers coming through. What do you think is the impact of cricket 
among women in India, and do you think it's having any impact on society? Do you think the, the way Indian women play cricket is now becoming a, a significant social thing beyond just the cricket field? Well, I think what's interesting since, I mean, if you look at my life as a cricket fan, more and more women follow the game. Uh, when I was young, uh, women were not there at the matches at all, um, all male, matches were mostly all male. But now more and more women follow the game, play the game. Uh, in, in the BCCI, I mean, the four months I spent there, I mean, there's, there's nothing I could really be proud of because... Uh, it's, I mean, before I joined the BCCI, uh, I used to refer to that organization as the Board for Corruption and Cronyism in India. <laughs> <laughs> the Supreme Court put us there and uh, we could do nothing. Uh, and it's still the board for corruption and cronyism in India. Uh, uh, the secretary uh, is the son of our home minister. That's his only qualification. Right. Uh, and so on and so forth. But I think among the things we did, uh, and I think it was really Diana and I who did that, we instituted, there used to be a lifetime award for cricketers, which was only for males. So we introduced one for women, and Shanta Rangaswamy, Coincidentally, from my home state of Karnataka, got the, got, got the first, first, first award. But I think it's true. We were discussing earlier, there's a very good history of Indian women's cricket that has been written by Kashyap and, uh, by, uh, 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 and Patnaik. Uh, but it's still very, I mean, the balance is still heavily tilted towards the male game. So, you know, how in terms, of course, of viewership, sponsorship, um, match fees, uh, but on the earlier point you made about nationalism, I think for someone like me, among the few things I will say in favour of the IPL is that it's made the Indian cricket fan less nationalistic because the IPL teams are multinational. Yeah. Yeah. And I wish they were Pakistanis too. I mean, Pakistanis were that's, playing that's, that's uh, till the 2008 attack on Mumbai and that attack is now 14 years in the past and I wish, you know, that's... Shaheen Shah, Fridi and Babar Azam could play here. Yeah. I mean, in fact, one of my colleagues, um, Mukul Keshavan, who's also a wonderful writer on cricket, suggested many years ago that, like you have a European Cup, there should be a South Asian. So, you know, you have Sevak playing for Multan, and you have Babar Azam playing for Bombay, and, you know, whatever. Uh, Kohli playing for Jafra. You know, I think that would be a way of... So, cricket could really uh, break national boundaries. Uh, so, the Indian fan has become slightly less nationalistic because of the IPL, and that's a good thing. But the demonizing of Pakistan remains. Yes, absolutely. In fact, because the IPL is now expanding beyond India, uh, and you have an IPL now in, in South Africa beginning in February, which will be the, uh, I think, Cape Town or the Mumbai Indians, Cape Town, uh, and all of the various franchise teams, board teams in, in South Africa. Similar thing is happening in Dubai for, for, for uh, and, and of course it's, it's only a, a matter of a few short months before that happens globally. So that's clearly the way, uh, the way that goes. So the IPL is going to determine uh, a great deal of what happens to you and what, what cricketers are able to be involved in and what they do, and in fact what, what cricket itself means. I think there's another area where I'm in favour of the IPL, apart from the nationalist 
nationalism point that you make. But also, I think cricket technique has improved considerably because of T20s in all sorts of ways. Uh, looking at that South African bowling attack, and I'm sorry to have to, to bring this up, uh, on, on Friday, and I only got to watch it on television. Uh, nonetheless, it, it was astonishing of the skills that were deployed, and they were deployed because all of those bowlers had learned those skills in the IPL. Uh, they'd learned the variations, they'd learned their, their control, uh, and that's what T20 cricket teaches you. It also teaches people how to bowl wrist spin. And wrist spin pre-Shane Warne had more or less died. After Shane Warne, there was no particular evidence of uh, anybody who could be anything like Shane Warne. And suddenly with the IPL, we've got a whole parade of wrist spinners, not least in India. Uh, a number of different uh, Mishtori and and, uh, Char and, and others, a number of different uh, leg spinners. So it's very significant. But the question I want to ask you about the IPL, which and also I kind of agree about the negative sides of the IPL. I mean, uh, as as more than one commentator points out, I mean the IPL effectively is made India, which is becoming increasingly wealthy and therefore increasingly able potentially to share the wealth. It's making more corrupt and more unequal yeah. than it was before. Uh, and what, what is your idea of what the future of cricket actually is with regard to the balance between test cricket and the IPL and so on? I want to ask you a bit more about test cricket in, in, in a second, but, but what's, what's your idea of that balance and where it goes? So first, if I make a question about the politics of cricket administration, from 1877, when the first test match was played, till 1977, when Kerry Packer introduced World Series cricket, England was the imperial hegemon of world cricket. You know, they were, the MCC was utterly imperialist in how it behaved towards other countries. From 1977 onwards, Australia became the hegemon. Because of the power of TG, TV and Channel 9, they would not, you know, uh, travel out uh, between November and Jan January. Visiting, visiting teams had to go there and be thrashed because there was Magra and Vaughan and War and Vaughan. And the Australian commentators, with the great exception of maybe Gideon Hake and one or two others, are unbelievably jingoistic. And so they were the imperialist hegemons. And from the IPL onwards, India has become the imperial hegemon. And a single country domination is bad for cricket as it is bad for everything else. So I think India being the superpower of world cricket, I mean, Sunil Gavaskar is a notorious apologist for Indian superpower. And he keeps on, you know, uh, uh, making all kinds of remarks about colonialism. But the British have been gone 75 years. You are ruling the world, cricketing wise. And he has no self awareness. He, People like him are propagandists of the board who can't look in the eye. That we are doing to the rest of the world what the English and the Australians once did. Once did right? And that's absolutely wrong. And the power of the IPL is dictating that. That's bad. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that, uh, uh, you know, where I draw the line is I, the IPL is not cricket. I think it's, uh, it's entertainment. I think it's contribution even to cricketing technique has been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> you know, the slow ball, the slow ball, I mean, look at wrist spinners whom you mentioned, yeah. uh, Rich. There's not a single wrist spinner in Test cricket who can ever get a wicket except for Yasir Shah and he does not play IPL. Bishnoi and Chahal can never get a wicket. Kuldeep Nair played, uh, Kuldeep Yadav played a few matches, that's it. Because 
what you have to bowl there is not you don't bowl like Shane Warne or Kumble for God's sake. You know, and Shane Warne and Kumble had that had that uh, dexterity, they, that versatility. They could bowl in all forms of the game. You know, uh, these guys can't. I mean, they can only bowl uh, uh, to stop a six being hit. That's it. They can't bowl to get a wicket. I mean, if you look at the fizz of the wicket that Warne or Kumble or Mushtaq got, that's all gone. So the art of this spin, as this spin has died, you know, uh, as we knew it when we were younger. Uh, the art of playing a long innings, no one can save a match. Uh, fielding has improved, running between the wickets has improved. But you know, where, where the real, I mean, I, this is, uh, as I have uh, uh, written before, test ticket is single malt and IPL is the local hooch. <laughs> you know you've got drunk, but you can't remember anything. I mean, I will remember for decades the third day of the Lord's Test. But can any of you remember a single thing about an IPL match? Except that some guys hit some sixes and some guys won. That's it. Right. So the beauty, the artistry, the poetry, the technique uh, that Tashkir offers. Uh, so it's sort of like a, a classic uh, in the Indian context, it's sort of like Indian classical music versus film songs. Right. So uh, in that sense, uh, the ballot, maybe the IPL is required because of uh, you, you, people can't really spend five days watching a test match, you need the crowds, you need the money, but the balance, I mean, there's now talk of a second IPL season. That would be disastrous. I mean, test cricket is the highest form of the game. I mean, it's the most beautiful form of the game, the most poetic form of the game. Uh, can there be great books written about the IPL, <laughs> for example, you know? Uh, can there be extended conversations? Like, uh, I mean, if I may just uh, make, give you one last example, my first example. My uncle Dore, who was the hero of my book, in 1952, India won its first test match in, uh, uh, in Chennai against England. We know my uncle got eight wickets. The match was played in Chennai. My uncle was in Dehradun, listening to it on the radio. And later on, a cousin of his who had watched the match told him about his wickets. 20, 20 years after the match was played, my uncle was telling me how Mankad got Graveney out, how he got Simpson out, how he got Watkins out. Now, would anyone remember a month later what happened in an IPL match? So, if you're a real cricket fan, you know, don't uh, uh, exalt the IPL. That's what I, how I would put it. Yeah, I, I, I try to uh, I try to play devil's advocate a bit there, but I kind of agree with you. So I can't uh, I can't say much about that. I, I agree. I mean, it's it's purely the problem is that for cricket to be memorable, it has to be have a unique moment. It has yeah. to be unique, and the IPL is not unique because it just replicates itself over and over again. And that's that's the problem with it. And there's nothing really at stake. There's no legacy. There's no tradition. There's no legend, and I think that's that's the problem with it. Let's, let's go back to test cricket, and this is, we're running a bit short of time, so this is the last thing I wanted to ask you, uh, Ram. Um, test cricket is, as, as we know, it's, it's, been, it's been going, uh, it, we're talking about almost 150 years. Uh, in in um, the, the test cricketing powers that be were, as you suggested, England controlling it, but then also the triumvirate. And the triumvirate began in 1907 with the ICC, with South Africa, oh, were so. brought in the gold mines that started producing. Lord Harris was chairman of Consolidated Goldfields. And the next thing you knew, South Africa were playing test cricket. 
And not only were they playing test cricket, but they backdated all the other games they'd played since 1888, where basically it was a couple of guys and a dog were playing, and they, uh, and they backdated those and turned those into test matches. So th that became the, the nexus of control. And then what happened, that those three countries controlled cricket. And India weren't playing tests, despite having a team which clearly had the players, which would have been more than competitive against, certainly against what India, England had most of the time, and, and definitely against South Africa. They weren't playing. Uh, none of the other countries were playing either. Uh, New Zealand weren't playing. Uh, and, and, uh, and so on. The West Indies, although they toured England in 1900, weren't playing. And so they, 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 were, they were happy to keep this little clique going. Yeah. Um, and so cricket control has sort of always been kind of cliquey. And, it's, and now, as you say, the, the BCCI appear to have taken over the way cricket is. And I, and I raise this point because it's, for me, this is a really significant issue that, that the cricket society should be involved in which is the nature of where Test Cricket is going. Yeah. And we have the, the, we have the future, the men's future programme, as it's called, which has just been set up and which, which has just been announced last, last Wednesday. And, and I, I haven't had a chance to look at it in detail, but I can tell you one thing, that in three, three and, a, and a half years from April uh, 23, South Africa will play six home Test matches in three sets of two test series. That is it for tests in South Africa. And in the next six months, from October 26 into March 27, they will play 10 test matches at home. Now, how are they going to do that? How is all that going to happen? Nobody's going to be watching test cricket at all by that stage. It'll have died in South Africa. That incredible attack that we saw playing on Friday. Of course, they won't get hammered at, at, uh, at the next game in Manchester, but we don't know. But Nonetheless, they were incredible attack, if only on that day. Uh, that will dissipate. They will go off and play IPL, it will disappear. What do we do about this? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it is true that uh, in this country, test matches are oversubscribed. I mean, I watched the New Zealand match in June. I was here for a couple of days. And it was absolutely packed. I don't think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but... Has an England-New Zealand match ever had a full house before? Can anyone tell me? Yeah, I think, that, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe England-Australia, England, Australia, England-India, England-Pakistan, England-West Indies. Uh, so, maybe, not uh, maybe it was, you know, the pandemic and, you know, revenge watching or whatever it's called. But in this country, I think Tesco will survive in some Indian centres. Uh, it'll probably survive, but you're right. In South Africa, West Indies, Pakistan, it's only PSL. Yeah. That, that's it. So, I think administrators have to make more effort. Maybe, you know, they have to have incentives. Maybe get school kids in free, you know, uh, for uh, at least half the, you know, because they make the money off television anyway. But it'd be a great pity. I mean, it's like uh, watching a great art form time. I mean, when I say... When this book claims that cricket is the most subtle and sophisticated game known to humankind, I did not have IPL in mind. <laughs> right. So, uh, uh, I mean, it's up to the administrators and the sponsors. Uh, Ward, uh, who was not just the greatest spin bowler ever, was a fantastic cricket player. I mean, I really enjoyed Warren as a commentator because A, he was completely non-partisan. I mean, he was not 
a typical Australian, you know, I mean, the other Australian competitors are unbelievably partisan. And so the Indians, by the way. I mean, it's a neck to neck between who's more partisan, the Indians and the Australians. Uh, but, you know, Vaughan uh, was a wonderful competitor, very knowledgeable. And he said many years ago, he said, one of the three forms has to die. And I hope it's not Test cricket. Test cricket and T20 will survive, should survive. He didn't say will survive. Uh, but, you know, if, as Richard says, if South Africa, with his great team, is playing six home tests. So it's something for us to answer. I mean, do we want to lose uh, the most subtle and sophisticated game known to humankind? I mean, I mean there's something, even about a five-day running trophy match. I went back in between these two tests, I went home and I watched the running trophy final. It was Madhya Pradesh, who had never won the running trophy, beat Bombay, who had won 41 times. Right. And the memories are absolutely vivid. And of course, no one came to watch them because it was not Royal Challengers Bangalore playing. Uh, it was not one afternoon. But I wish the administrators and the players, and again with the players, I don't know, because if they're paid, if you look at Stokes, uh, you know, uh, giving up 50-50, uh, Quentin de Kock giving up test ticket, he claims it's because of his family, but do we believe it? No. Okay. No, you don't believe it, right? Okay, so, uh, of course, some of the West Indians gave up a long time ago. Uh, and some of them never started. Huh? Some of them never started. Some of them never played Test cricket. Played all, yeah. So, I think players, certainly someone like Kohli was all for testing. You know, and, I, and so was Sevak, so was Tendulkar. Uh, so, we'll have to find a way. I don't know what the way is. <laughs> yes, well, well, if you don't know, Rab, I think we're all struggling here. But uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've really, uh, really enjoyed this. And, and uh, we've got a lot of problems to deal with. No. Test cricket has got a lot of problems to deal with. We need to see that. We need to see the crisis that it is. And the ICC does not appear to be protecting cricket's interests. And we need to think hard about, about that. But it's been fantastic. Thank you.